You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Microsoft, it unveils its first custom-designed AI and cloud chips. We'll discuss what the move means for the company and its competitors. And SpaceX planning to spin off its Starlink unit for a public listing as soon as late 24. We'll bring you the details from our scoop as Elon Musk denies the reporting. And we'll break down what to expect from the meeting between President Biden and Xi in San Francisco, as well as what it means for tech's city's future. But let's have a quick check in on these markets because we're just calming down after a rampant rally that we've seen in the world of stocks, but still holding on to gains on the Nasdaq. We're up a tenth of a percent, two tenths, let's call it. And in notable, we're seeing gains over in China, whether or not we're seeing the fuel feed over from the US into China, but also some of the economic data coming in strong when it comes to retail, when it comes to the consumer there. And notably among some of the companies have been reporting their earnings. Of course, we see Tencent beat. We see JD.com beat in terms of their earnings. And therefore, we push ahead to what's happening with Alibaba. So green on the screen in China. We're looking at the 10-year yield just managing to rise up quite a lot today, though. Remember, after we've seen really yields come crashing down, as many anticipate that the Federal Reserve is done with its hiking cycle and indeed many a central bank around the world. Move on to see what's happening in terms of the world of Bitcoin. Actually, for once, we're getting a bit of a bid. Having yesterday been relatively calm, we're at 36,383. We're up more than 2.2 on the day end. What have you got on the micro? Yeah, the story that's broken in the last hour is Microsoft unveiling its first kind of custom silicon. It's two chips, in fact. Maya is the AI accelerator for both training and inference. And then you have Cobalt, which sees Microsoft moved into kind of the more generic server uh, design chip space. It's interesting who it's impacted. The the news didn't really move the needle for Microsoft. We're soft to three-tenths of 1%. I would say that in the last 30 minutes or so, declines on NVIDIA have accelerated. We're going to look a bit closer at NVIDIA in just 
a second, but I would point out that Maya, the AI accelerator, it's kind of looking at the specs, not the same as your H100. It's more general use on both the training and inference side rather than that kind of high spec H100. But it's interesting to see the market play out. The fact that Nvidia is down this Wednesday session, well, I'm very sorry to say, uh, Caroline, that the record equaling streak for Nvidia is over. As it stands, if we close in the red, Nvidia snaps those 10 straight days of gains, which matched its longest streak of wins going back to December 2016. An 11th day of gains would have been uh, a new record for Nvidia. So much momentum, though, about what they're doing in new chips for China. The H100 is still pretty much the only game in town when you're training those foundation models with billions and billions of parameters. But what does this Microsoft mean news mean for kind of more general AI? Let's bring in Rishi Jaluria, Managing Director and Software Equity Research Analyst at RBC Capital Markets. Currently has an outperform rating on shares of Microsoft, a $390 price target. Uh, Rishi, you kind of heard my explanation and my reaction to both Meyer and Cobalt. What is yours? Yeah, and, and thanks so much for having uh, me. Really appreciate it. I'm, I'm actually here in New York at RBC's Global Tech Conference, at, at a conference, and as you can imagine, generative AI front and center in all our conversations. And look, one of the themes that we hear from a lot of companies is it is prohibitively expensive to do generative AI, right? Not just the training, uh, but the inferencing, trying to add domain expertise, connecting all these different systems. And so what I think Microsoft brings here is they can help themselves and other companies overcome this big GPU shortages out there. As you said, the specs aren't quite the same exactly as an A100, but I think what's what's interesting is you don't necessarily need only A100s to do all your training, especially if you're thinking about, you know, more domain-specific models or trying to do some, you know, uh, additional tooling on top of GPT-4 or Llama 2. And so this creates, I think, more accessibility for large language models, for, uh, you know, software companies, for industry companies to embrace generative AI without seeing that huge cost drag. Um, so I'm really excited to see this news. This is something that we suspected uh, for a long time, uh, mm. but I think it is ultimately going to make Gen AI more accessible. TSMC, I think, making the chips arm sort of behind from a technology right. perspective. But I'm interested, Rishi, as to what this does mean for competitors. Amazon's already been doing this. Alphabet's Google has already been doing this with their cloud provisions. Does it re- who, who does it impact? It feels like maybe Intel's the one to be watching. Yeah, look, I, I think it impacts everyone, right? I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to see how the specs between uh, AWS's chips and, and GCP's chips and Microsoft chips uh, compare. But Microsoft has already this kind of pole position as being uh, the leader when it comes to enterprise generative AI. And, and I think this only bolsters that, that companies now know that they can go to Microsoft and, and they may not need to go to someone like Oracle that has excess GPU capacity. They can stick with Microsoft because now Microsoft has the capacity given their, they've shown the ability to develop this in-house. Um, so this is probably, I think, positive for Microsoft. Um, probably it's going to be, you know, as, as you said, there are absolutely direct implications for Intel, uh, for AMD, for others within the chip space. Um, but, but overall, I think this is just going to be positive for Microsoft and OpenAI. It's so interesting to see where some of these names are trading right now. Intel's up 2% in the session. Caro makes such a good point that this battleground seems like the lower end of the accelerator market. I'm looking specifically at Microsoft though, right, Rishi? That's why we're here. It's down two tenths of what percent. It's kind of like a, a muted reaction. Does that signal that this just isn't a game changer for Microsoft's cloud business? Like why is there not a more significant reaction in the stock here? 
Yeah, look, I think uh, people are, the jury is still out, right? As you correctly pointed out, the specs aren't exactly up to the top of the line GPUs from NVIDIA. And, you know, given Microsoft's pace of innovation, perhaps investors were expecting something uh, like that. I think Microsoft will eventually get there. I think they've shown they have the ability to, to innovate and move very quickly. And that might explain why there's maybe a little bit of a needed reaction. I'll also say beyond the chips, some of the product announcements mm-hmm. we've seen so far out of Ignite may not be as exciting as people were hoping to see. I think, on, in, my, in my view, uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff that, that we're already seeing. And, you know, obviously, as Cynthia's keynote uh, is about to kick off, I think we're going to see a lot more. So I wouldn't be surprised as, as the conference and the day goes on, Microsoft stock actually moves up, assuming that they continue to make, you know, I think announcements that excite people, give some stats around um, M365 adoption. I really like that they've rebranded Ding Enterprise Chat as Microsoft Copilot. I think that makes it a much more digestible, kind of straightforward value proposition. And, and I think this just opens up a lot of innovation from Microsoft. Rishi, as we do anticipate what Satya is going to say on stage, it is interesting that it looks like it's the price that is becoming front and center now. We had that with OpenAI's Developers Day as well. It all seemed to be suddenly a bit of a race to offer more and accessibility and GPTs and, and chats as we're seeing, more, more assistance, but with a cheaper price point, a new lower price for clients, for example, a Microsoft 365 co-pilot product for the Office software and the sales co-pilot. Is that going to be a bit of a rush downwards, do you think, in the price point of all of these? I actually don't think so. Uh, in fact, I would argue, I mean, going to open AI, $20 a month is actually too cheap for what you're getting out of ChatGPT4, assuming you're a power user, which yeah, I would consider myself to be one of those. Um, for Microsoft Copilot, the name of the game here is not about uh, lowering the price. It's about adding new features and adding new capabilities. And so now, you know, with the announcements today, uh, what used to be called Bing Enterprise Chat now is Microsoft Copilot is part of that $30 per user per month that was in the M365 SKU that uh, got released earlier this month. Um, you also have connectivity uh, of M365 Copilot to systems of record like ServiceNow and Workday. And so to me, as long as Microsoft continues to grow what is included in that SKU, in that $30 per user per month, uh, I think people are going to be able to justify that price pretty easily and, and look look no further than github copilot uh, github copilot has been a, a you know the, the the most mature generative ai product for microsoft it's been you know i think a slam dunk and so if you look at the metrics in terms of developer productivity new code generation and i i wouldn't be surprised if we start to see the same out of m360 copilot as they continue to innovate you know maybe uh, uh you know for an excel junkie like me we'll get a, an excel copilot that makes my life of building financial models and doing data analysis a, a lot easier over the next year. So really the name of the game is going to be innovation and adding more features, not lowering price. Okay, I just want to jump in and point out that the OpenAI is going to be testing the Azure Maya 100. And the relationship is so interesting because OpenAI relies on Microsoft, not just for cash, but compute credits. They also like rely on NVIDIA, the badge of honor of the H100. It's complicated, but it's going to be interesting to see in the end who's going to win the computing war. Just wanted to say. Yeah, a lot of friends, a lot of frenemies and a lot of deal making. I mean, we heard earlier this week that some are still banking on Microsoft perhaps injecting more money as it goes forwards and exactly. grows. Rishi Jaluria, it's so great. We'll let you get back to the conference. Go enjoy all the conversations around generative AI. We thank you from the RBC Capital Markets.
China's President Xi Jinping has touched down in San Francisco for APEC, where he's expected to sit down with the U.S. President Joe Biden today. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Amory Holden, and it was 3 p.m. local time that we saw these pictures of him exiting his plane. Of course, Treasury Secretary Yellen there to help greet, as well as Gavin Newsom. Amory, there is a whole lot riding on this and a whole lot of protection as well going on. Yeah, there's a lot of protection, I can tell you that. It took a while, actually, to get to where I'm standing right now. A ton of security in San Francisco, and Ed could attest to that as well. But this is a high-stakes meeting, and it's actually happening outside of San Francisco proper at an estate. Um, a little bit more relaxed feel. It has 16 acres of gardens. It kind of is reminiscent of when Xi Jinping came during the Obama administration, and they met in Palm Springs. And really, physically, they were rolling up their sleeves to get to work. So for the Biden administration, we heard from... President Biden, before he departed the White House to San Francisco yesterday, talking about the fact that he just wants to get relationships to a normal correspondence, to be able to pick up the phone during times of conflict, to make sure that their militaries go back to normal communication, a normal dialogue, um, a normal cadence of that dialogue that we saw really just ripped apart following former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last summer. And for Xi Jinping, he's obviously dealing domestically with an economy that hasn't bounced back, as some were hoping following the pandemic, a property market that is um, dismal at the moment, and a very high youth unemployment rate. This summer is at 20 percent, and that was the last time we saw the data. So for Xi Jinping, this is a moment of potentially trying to open up some more goodwill on the economic front, not just with President Biden, but also this evening when he meets with chief executive officers. Right. I mean, we've heard from sources that, you know, the who's who of tech execs are trying to get into that dinner. The, the aim is to thaw relationships, particularly on the economic side, right, AMH. But this, the battleground here is that the U.S. has these technology export curbs on China in the context of AI and chips. Is that going to be a factor here? Well, this is something that Xi Jinping would love to get rid of, but we already heard from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and we heard from President Biden himself. And Biden yesterday was saying how it is in the U.S. interest if an average Chinese citizen is able to go out and have a working wage and make a decent living. But Biden was very clear. He will not move economically if it impedes U.S. national security interests. So those export controls, those penalties, those types of sanctions, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. All right, Bloomberg's Amory Horden will be on the ground at APEC all week. We will continue to bring you that reporting. Thank you so much. Let's get more and bring in Dr. Oriana Schuyler-Mastro, a center fellow at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Dr. Mastro, also the author of Upstart, How China Became a Great Power. Welcome to the program, Dr. Mastro. You heard Amory set out the discussion points between Biden and Xi. For you, what is the most significant point of discussion between those two leaders? Well, I think both sides are saying the fact that they're even meeting to discuss anything is the biggest takeaway. We uh, are facing a bunch of issues right now, security, economic, that as the two most powerful countries in the world, the United States and China, need to be able to collaborate and talk about these issues together. And if we don't have routine and sustained and predictable visits between the two leaders, this becomes increasingly difficult. And it's hard to sustain anything that they might even agree to at this visit. And so really, 
really what I'll be looking for is not only the types of topics that they're going to discuss and what's on the agenda, but whether or not they actually have any sort of frank exchange. I'm interested to dig into really all the perfect points around your book that's forthcoming. The idea that through they've built up, China in particular has built up this power, whether it be militarily, whether it be economically, whether it be entrepreneurially in, in many ways. But you sort of outline how, and it's through strategic emulation, through exploitation, through entrepreneurship. And I'm interested from the tech perspective, whether all this tit for tat that we continue to see, particularly when it's limitations to access to chips, for example, just is going to be the norm. Would that be your policy recommendation? Well, I think the prediction would be that China is going to be somewhat entrepreneurial in its approach to this tech competition. In many cases, when I talk to investors, they often uh, express some frustration with the economic decisions that China makes at home. But as I lay out in the book, party control is one of the main factors that decides for China which strategy they're going to pursue. And a lot of times they can't emulate what the United States is doing because it doesn't, it's not conducive for their domestic political system at home. So they have to go another route. Sometimes that route is relatively ineffective, like we see with soft power and perhaps the speed at which the renminbi is becoming a reserve currency uh, without loosening uh, capital controls. That's going to be difficult uh, for China. But I have no doubt that as they face these new challenges, they're going to try to think of new ways to exploit their own competitive advantages, gaps in the international system, for example, and standards and other areas that are important for technology to still try to get ahead. Dr. Mastro, corporate America, according to our reporting, is doing everything it can to get into that room and have dinner with President Xi. You heard us outline earlier in the program about the technology export curbs in place. Do you think that Xi can have any kind of leverage? He can use the interest of technology CEOs in meeting him to go to Biden and say, look, everyone wants to do business here. I am highly doubtful that that would work. Honestly speaking, not only from the U.S. perspective, but also from the Chinese perspective. With Xi Jinping, power is more important than prosperity. There's many decisions that we have seen him make that if economic prosperity were the number one priority, he would have done something completely different. I think the COVID zero policy is a perfect example of that. And the same for, for the United States. National security now trumps all things. The Chinese military has been modernizing at a pace and a speed and at a level that it now presents a, a threat to the United States. And so we can no longer turn a blind eye to certain technologies that can be dual use. And so perhaps those leaders will get into the room and have a very pleasant meeting with Xi Jinping. But I don't think he's going to change his approach to technology control at home. That is important for his own control over the country. Uh, and it's not going to uh, convince the United States to mm. put itself at risk for the sake of economic prosperity. We have seen such a change in supply chains, whether it's been focused through COVID, whether or not it's been the geopolitics at play. Ultimately, the corporates that you speak to about this, is that just going to be the narrative going forward? We are going to see more of a bifurcation or not? Well, I really hope it doesn't get to that level of, of a complete bifurcation in two different blocks. Uh, I was in China two weeks ago having a dialogue with the Chinese, and they have the often uh, retort that the United States is trying to contain them. You know, U.S. policy and limited export controls is no way a containment of China. And I hope we don't move in that direction because our economies are quite interdependent. But I think what we're seeing is a lot of leaders 
understand that de-risking is important, whether it's supply chains for the United States so we can continue to fight wars uh, if we have to, or for leaders that might have manufacturing hubs within China. It is important to have a plan B because this is not the Cold War. The United States and China have some conflicting interests, and it's possible that the two sides find themselves at blows. Dr. Ariana Skyler-Mastro, fascinating. We thank you so much of Stanford University and, of course, much more. Meanwhile, coming up, let's talk a little bit about the private markets. SpaceX considering spinning off its Starlink unit to a public company as soon as 2024. Well, guess who's behind that reporting? One Ed Ludlow. We'll speak about it in a minute. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, Bloomberg reporting this morning. SpaceX is discussing an IPO for its Starlink satellite business. As soon as the end of next year, 2024, on robust demand, Elon Musk responded almost immediately after we published that story in response to a user on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, saying false. That's all he said without elaborating. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Ryan Gould, who is one of the reporters that reported this story with me. Ryan, let's go over the mechanics of what we know. Yeah, that's right, Ed. Uh, obviously, great to share a byline with you, uh, Mr. Technology. But uh, last night we reported that, uh, or this morning even, that we reported that SpaceX has started discussing uh, a potential uh, off public offering uh, for Starlink as soon as the end of next year. Uh, it has started to move the satellites, uh, satellite companies' assets into uh, 
uh, a wholly owned subsidiary that would eventually be spun off in an IPO. Obviously, you just mentioned that, that Musk himself said this morning that you know this reporting was false. But you know we just say that of course no final decisions have been made and that SpaceX could opt to retain the unit. But you know this is something that I think Musk has, as we know, spoken about uh, over some time. Sort of hinted at this at, at various occasions. Uh, he has said yeah. that you know in 2021, uh, as far back as 2021, that Starlink would list shares uh, once it could make predictions reasonably well about cash flow. Of course, on November right. 2nd, he said that Starlink had reached cash flow break even. So um, for all of the posturing and the gesturing, I think you know it's interesting that you know we uh, we put out this report yesterday, uh, this morning. I keep saying, um, and yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, we'll see. I mean, the reporting takes a little bit of time, Ryan. Well, I'm interested, Ed, is what an about turn this actually sort of is. I mean, it's not that long ago since we used to discuss, well, concerns around just trying not to get bankrupt, basically, in Starlink. But what fueled its sudden growth? Well, it's consistent with what we reported, right? Must saying that it has reached cash flow break even, but that reporting last week, Starlink could bring in $10 billion of revenue next year. That would make it the vast majority of SpaceX revs overall, and it's, it's working. You know, if you look at a map of where Starlink's deployed around the world, it is widespread. It offers connectivity, satellite-based internet for people around the world that have not been able to get access to fast-speed internet before. Uh, the demand is there, and we know that the rollout has been careful and slow because there's a regulatory component, but there is demand for this, and it's the centerpiece of SpaceX's future, right? The cash cow that Musk says will take us to Mars. And just think how slow competitors have been there. Like, Amazon still cautiously going through it with Project Kuiper, but not coming anytime soon in terms of the pace that we've really seen from SpaceX. We want to thank you for all of your bylines. There were another couple, Gillian and Esteban on it as well. Great reporting. Ryan Gould, we thank you. And indeed, of course, and Ludlow. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get you a quick check on these markets halfway through this trading day. We are managing to sustain some sort of gains in the Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100. We're currently up about a tenth of a percent. Now, remember, we were up more than 2% on this benchmark yesterday. So just cooling after the rampant growth. We've got a little bit of a Goldilocks scenario going on with the data once again today. Retail sales are cooling a little bit, but still looking resilient into the holiday period. And that PPI number, those producer prices actually showing some pullback, that inflationary anxiety dialing down. Bond market it sells off, but the Golden Dragon over, of course, the Nasdaq Golden Dragon, really showing some fuel and buying of Chinese-related companies that are traded here in the United States. We're up 3.5% after we had beats from Tencent, JD.com in particular. We all look at Alibaba. Also, of course, there's still hope that we might see some stimulus going into the Chinese economy. Big day for US and China, of course, from a geopolitical perspective. Bitcoin currently up 2.3%. Go into the individual movers, though, on the day. And we do want to highlight some of the individual idiosyncratic news coming from, well, the likes of JD.com with its numbers doing well. We're up more than 7%. All eyes on Alibaba for after the bell. I'm looking at Amazon down by 1.8%. And this is related to what's happening with Microsoft potentially. Microsoft now going in with its own chips, making sure that its supply chain is under control when it comes to AI-related chips, those in data centers. Amazon has already been doing that. So too is Alphabet, of course, Google, and many of the cloud providers. Amazon just down by 1.7%. Maybe that's also about mm, the retail data that just showed a little bit of cooling. So 
appetite for some retail-related names in China, not so much here in the United States. But, Ed, well, we're going to be going into where some of these companies hail from. We're all talking about Silicon Valley day in, day out. From a geopolitical perspective, we talk about San Francisco on the day as well. So there's a spotlight on this city this week because of APEC, but I want to bring you another story that was in Bloomberg Business Week this morning. Michael Moritz, the prominent venture investor who became known basically for making early investments in Google, LinkedIn, PayPal, Yahoo. That was during the years where he was a partner at Sequoia Capital. Moritz is now focusing on investing his time and money in remaking San Francisco, a city that he thinks has lost its way. Moritz has lived there here for four decades and is dedicated, get this character, more than $300 million since 2020 to both social and political causes in this city, basically funding hundreds of nonprofits and different advocacy groups. The spotlight's here in SF. It is. The spotlight is also on ultimately the remaking of the city, particularly as we keep talking about generative AI. As suddenly it becomes more of a hub, cerebral valley as we talk about it, the, the scale of appetite for rental space. We're going to have so much of this conversation throughout the show. Let's keep talking about San Francisco's future and revival right now with Natalie Sandoval, Executive Director of the Urban Land Institute San Francisco, a network of cross-disciplinary real estate land use experts, which is look, working towards this exact goal this rejuvenation, maybe it's a PR effort, maybe it's a reality effort that people haven't been coming back to San Francisco proper in terms of the office space. What was it? 30% of office space just unleashed as it stands. Is that changing at all, Natalie? Yeah, um, thank you uh, for inviting me. Um, I think, you know, ULI recently brought together a group of national experts from around the country to talk about just that downtown revitalization and, you know, what can be the future for San Francisco. And what was interesting is we had all of these folks come in from around the country expecting this horrid environment. And really, they were surprised. They were like, it's not that bad. Uh, And, you know, with every crisis comes opportunity. And I really do think coming out of the recommendations from this panel, there really is a lot of opportunity for downtown San Francisco, particularly thinking about how we can diversify the mix of uses to really make it a, a great neighborhood. Uh, Natalie, good morning. Uh, you're over in Oakland. I'm here in San Francisco. I just want to go back on what you just said. So earlier this year, ULI convened this group of people and you basically showed them San Francisco and they were pleasantly surprised, I understand, on the health and state of this city. I started this week by speaking to the mayor and said, look, uh, everyone is asking how you were suddenly able to clear up the city in a week because the president is in town and the president of China is in, is in town. To be very clear, your findings well before APEC were that San Francisco is making improvement. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the narrative around San Francisco and the doom loop is really a narrative that isn't quite accurate. I think the city has actually been hard at work at making changes for a while now. Uh, Particularly, you know, our work has been focused on the financial district of downtown San Francisco, and that's where our panelists spent their time. And there was really a general consensus that it felt pretty clean and safe. Um, You know, there was some activity on the street. It obviously wasn't exactly like it was in the pre-pandemic days. Um, You know, there's still some work to be done on the kind of gateways and the connectors to the financial district of downtown San Francisco. But I I do think that the city has been hard at work making some changes well in advance of APEC coming to town. APEC coming to town, just like any city when they're going to have a global spotlight on them, 
are going to go through some, you know, more uh, extreme measures to clean up the city. And I think mm. that's only a good thing for San Francisco. Everyone loves a bit of schadenfreude. Everyone loves to sit in one city and badmouth another. And I am interested, though, it was but a few months ago that I was in San Francisco walking across that very street that we just saw in the Embarcadero. And I'm afraid there were still so many poor signs of such sadness. People still very much living on the street. A lot of what people call tent city. How is there a long term ultimate fix to that? And how do we start to see some of the areas of focus really feel rejuvenated, not only on Market Street, but more broadly when it comes to art, to culture, and and really what makes a city thrive? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when we're talking about downtown, the financial district in particular, you know, it's really been a single-use district. It's been commercial office and catering to people from the nine to five. So I think the first step there, and this is what our panelists found, is we really need to think about diversifying this area, which, you know, bringing in residential is, you know, one piece of that puzzle. Um, But Conversion isn't a silver bullet. All of these buildings can't be turned to housing, but you know it will help not only with our housing crisis, but to diversify the area in downtown. But you can't just fill a bunch of these office spaces with housing well, units quite. and call it a day. Well, Nafi, I, I just reflect, look, I, I, I am a resident of San Francisco and I work in San Francisco. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the, the doom loop discussion, that is not universally the experience of everyone that lives mm. here, right? There's a lot that's good about right. this city. But you just made a point on diversify. And the neighborhood you're talking about, Uber, Salesforce, X, the company formerly known as Twitter, it is still largely tech or it's vacant. Is AI changing that? You know, I'm not an expert on what's going to happen with AI. I know there's a lot of hope for AI. There is still, you know, San Francisco has been the tech center um, of the world for a number of years. I don't think that's going to change. I think that AI will likely be interested in coming to San Francisco. But I also think other things and other types of businesses need to come to San Francisco. And the city is working on figuring out how to incentivize those other types of businesses to be interested as well. And, And it's not only these big companies. We're also talking about San Francisco locally made businesses to support the arts and culture, uh, as you said earlier, and bring them to downtown. All right. Natalie Sandoval, executive director of the Urban Land Institute, San Francisco. Thank you so much. Let's stick with this city. Another fixture of San Francisco's landscape is or has been robo taxis. And until recently, it was the only city in the world that had two robo taxis operating 24 seven and charging a fare to the public. But some issues led to Cruise's permit being removed. And now hundreds of emails between Cruise and the city's police department give us a window into the relationship between those two groups, ranging from contentious to the collaborative. I want to bring in Julia Love, who Julia Love, who did such a deep dive on these these documents and emails. Uh, what what have you found out? Well, this was really a fascinating glimpse into the relationship between Cruz and the San Francisco Police Department at a really pivotal time for the service. And SFPD raised some concerns. There were multiple times when the vehicles um, disrupted crime scenes, um, uh, barreling through caution tape. Um, there were also um, an, uh, there was also an incident in which First Lady Jill Biden was visiting the city, and the vehicles got confused by the motorcade and disrupted its path. Um, so some, some new windows into the, the bumps on the road that we have been seeing for some time now with, with crews. Yeah. Um, there were also some signs, though, that 
the police um, does um, have an interest in the data that Cruz obtains. Um, they wrote to Cruz multiple times um, expressing an interest in obtaining its footage after the vehicles were spotted near crime scenes. And Cruz did appear to be um, upholding its practice of making the officers get warrants, but I think it just underscores that this is a, a multifaceted relationship. It is, and one that, well, the police also have with Alphabet's Waymo, and I'm sure there are plenty of sort of back and forth and, and sometimes celebratory relationships and other, other times more, more difficult and tense relationships. Ultimately, does this shine a light on any way in which we'll see crews back in San Francisco? They remain in Phoenix, they remain in Austin. Is it going to come back to the city? Well, I think it, the emails show just how hard Cruz worked to maintain a good relationship with SFPD despite these troubles that arose. And experts tell me that that relationship really will be the key to Cruz returning to San Francisco. SFPD won't be the one that ultimately restores its permit to operate in the state, but police really do help shape um, locals' views of a company. Company. And so if, if Cruz can um, earn the trust of SFPD, then that is a step toward earning the, the trust of everyday San Franciscans. And of course, Ed, you were just with the mayor, London Breed, talking about how they have to work to regain trust. So notable that that is certainly an effort they are on with the city. Julia Love, thank you so much for that reporting. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to take a look at an aviation company, Archer, from self-driving cars. Now we're looking at getting in the air and how the CFO is steering finances through the pre-revenue phase. It's coming from Bloomberg's latest Chief Financial Officer episode coming up tonight. Guess who's in it as well? This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time now for Talking Tech First Up. OpenAI has had to press pause on accepting new users for its paid ChatGPT Plus service due to overwhelming demand. It's according to the CEO, Sam Altman. He's put it on a post on Tuesday. Demand for OpenAI's tools and services rose after the company, of course, introduced new features and upgrades at its first ever developer day. That was last week. And from APEC to the Singapore FinTech Festival in just, well, an hour. After delivering a speech in California, the Philippine president, Ferdinand Macros Jr., appeared halfway across the globe in Singapore using a hologram. That takes me back. He was the festival's only speaker to tap into that technology. Plus, ByteDance is considering selling Shanghai Moonton Technology. It's the gaming studio behind popular game like Mobile Legends Bang Bang. Sources say ByteDance acquired Moonton in 2021 at a valuation of about $4 billion, but is now looking to streamline its operation, focus more on the core businesses and, of course, e-commerce. Meanwhile, Ed, well, you've got something on the future of technology too. Yeah, I've kind of been up in the air, sort of. Archer, Mm -hmm. the EV toll company, is getting ready to bring its aircraft to market in 2025. That's when the FAA has said it will begin to allow limited operation of those vehicles as air taxis. In the latest episode of Bloomberg's Chief Future Officer, I took a look at their air taxi called Midnight, and I chatted with Archer's CFO, Mark Messler, Chief Commercial Officer, Nikhil Goel, and CEO and founder, Adam Goldstein. Have a listen to this. All right, this is it. This is inside midnight. Welcome. The design is four passenger seats, front row, back row, and one pilot. How, after all this time, did you arrive at that configuration? Four passengers, one pilot. Our goal is to be the Uber of the air. When I was at Uber, we took all the data of Uber trips going back and forth all over the world. And what we figured out was that four passengers was the optimal configuration to do one thing, which is lower the cost per passenger for these trips. We understand what the cost of the aircraft is. We understand what the cost of the pilot is. We understand what the cost of the uh, repair and maintenance of this is. We understand battery costs. All of that feeds into our unit level economic model. And it does show that pricing at ride sharing prices allows us to make uh, an economic profit on that. Back at Archer headquarters, I actually got to fly midnight. Okay, not for real, virtually, in the company's e-simulator. Training pilots is another hurdle the EV toll industry will have to clear. How much burden are you going to take in the training process? You know, why does that fall to Archer? And if it does, what does it look like for you guys? I think initially we are going to be training our own pilots. This is our own technology. I think eventually as we look to scale, and we're always talking about unlocking scale, we could look to partners to help us uh, do some of the training. Early on, pilot training will be a critical part of our of our own operations. The simulators really help you get a sense for how easy the vehicles are to fly. In fact, what we've found is people with less flying experience are actually better at flying these planes because you don't have to unlearn as much. Does that include me? That includes you. So within five minutes, you were able to take off, fly around the island of Manhattan, and land successfully. And that's your first time you've ever been in a simulator, and that's pretty incredible. 
and I landed it safely. You can catch the full episode of Chief Future Officer tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. A lot of fun. Investment managers are releasing, of course, their so-called 13F filings for the third quarter, as required by the SEC. And the filings give us kind of a taste, a view into what these managers have been buying, what they've been selling. Joining us now is Hema Palmer, Bloomberg News reporter covering hedge funds, who's really given us a beautiful roundup of ultimately where the bit bets were placed. It's backward looking, mm-hmm. but some notable standouts. Yes. So I would say one of the standouts is Meta. We've seen um, kind of across the board buying, if we look at the Tiger Cubs, which are typically the hedge funds that are focusing on the tech stocks and quite keen on the rotation in that space. So if we look at Lone Pine Capital, they started a brand new position in Meta, in Meta and it's actually now their largest long holding for hmm. the firm. They bought um, about 2.7 million shares at about an $800 million valuation at the end of the last quarter. Um, so they took a pretty chunky sizable stake. If we look at some of the other funds, Tiger Global, Viking, um, Co2, they all increased their stake in Meta. It's now Tiger Global's biggest holding and it's KOTU's second biggest holding. It's, uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, 13F <laughs> filings is. for so many. Uh, but on the other side of the table, you just mentioned them, Tiger Global. That's kind of a name that we jump on. What do we learn? Yeah, so Tiger Global, they increased their stake in C, the internet uh, consumer company. They bought a ton more of that stock, up to about 11 million shares of it. And it's uh, a company that's really struggled. Their stock price has struggled over the past quarter. So it looks like the company may have, the firm may have bought the dip on that, believing in the, the projections of um, how that company may look, but taking advantage of this, the share price. Another interesting thing with Tiger Global is you'll remember that they've been a long-term investor in JD.com. They got into JD.com well before it went public. And they've cut their stake in the shares of JD.com by about half, even more than half. Mm. And that builds on them cutting even the quarter before last. So we do see a bit of a, a trend there reducing that stake, even though buying more C. Interesting that, as you see, it's not performed well yet to date, but JD.com mm. popping after its earnings. So maybe they want to be longer a little bit at the moment, at least, or Rue being shorter on the day. What about those that people generally sold out of? Was JD Call the theme, for example. What were the other names? So we saw some rotations. If we look at Viking, they sold about 13 stocks entirely, Netflix and Alibaba, mm. but they also bought 15 others. Um, with Viking, they bought Workday, Amazon, and United Parcel. Those are now their top three biggest holdings. So you do see a lot of rotations across the portfolio. Sometimes you see aggregated buying in like a meta. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of other selling in JD.com, but um, um, we, it, each fund sort of has their own specific way that they look at um, the way that they approach tech. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Oh, I'm sorry, Carrie, I'll jump in, but you know, 13 Fs, you, you get a sense of what do people like or not like on a long-term basis, and these are the guys deploying big sums of capital. Thank you so much to Bloomberg's Hema Palmer. Let's come back to San Francisco. The commercial real estate market is having a moment. While it struggled more than any other U.S. major city to recover from the pandemic, AI startups have been breathing new life into the city's market. Let's go to Bloomberg's Priya Anand, who's been writing about this this morning. What does the data tell us? Like, we know that AI is a thing new companies being founded, Mm -hmm. but from a square footage perspective, something real is happening here. 
AI companies have added more than a million square feet of office space this year, and real estate agents telling me are telling me that every day they're touring with different companies, looking at more and more office space. Clearly, in this industry, in the sub industry within tech, people feel a need to be in person uh, at least several days a week, if not most of the days of the week. And some of the names, like was it Anthropic taking over Saxon Company, HQ? It would feel like we've got other key AI names just building out secondary headquarters in SF, even if it's not their first. But what about turning space to be fit for them? We were hearing, well, Ed was having a conversation with the mayor of San Francisco about making more space for AI labs. That's right. And what's interesting is actually a lot of these AI companies are not clustering downtown necessarily, or they're not uh, necessarily attached to being specifically downtown. So OpenAI is in the Mission District, and a lot of companies have sprouted up kind of near their office in the Mission. There's a a part of town that's getting termed Area AI. It's sort of uh, the eastern part of the Mission, a little bit of Soma and Potrero Hill. And that part of town has actually seen a number of offices crop up and a number of companies sort of clustering there. Maybe it's the open AI effect, right? Wanting to be close to the center of gravity in this industry. Priya Anand, it's a great story. People should go read it. We thank you so much. Meanwhile, look, that is it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. Go out, tell everyone about the podcast. Wherever you get yours, Bloomberg, Apple, Spotify. From SF in New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.